We have been working our way through a series out of uh, Matthew chapter 18 on uh, Jesus' plan for conflict resolution. Uh, Also, uh, it's been understood, this passage, and described as church discipline. You know, we've talked a great deal about that over the last number of weeks. This is the uh, fourth in a series of five. Uh, Next week, we'll talk about forgiveness. Um, But this week is... um, when it reaches the, uh, the formal stage of, of addressing the issue to the elders. And I would encourage you to go back. We started the series with a, a sermon on biblical elders. If you missed that, uh, you know, you can go back if you missed any of them over the last number of weeks and, uh, and listen to those and catch up. Uh, but as we come this morning, and I hope as we finish really out of Matthew 18, we're finishing the text this morning that what we're looking at. My goal in the whole series and my goal this morning is Uh, a couple of things, and one is that we would see the plan as Jesus gave it to us, and that we as a people, as a family, would be committed uh, to following Jesus' plan because it's his plan for us, and two, that we would ultimately see the plan as a great gift and a blessing to the church, that he gave it to us for our well-being and for our health, that he gave it to us because he loves us. It's the same reason he gives all of his gifts to us. And all the things that he's given us from the Ten Commandments and uh, all the ways that he has addressed the life of the church, they're a great gift to us. So we're in Matthew chapter 18, and we're just going to read verses 15 to 17 this morning, and we will camp on verse 17. Hear then the word of God. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone... And if he listens to you, then you have gained your brother. If he does not listen to you, then take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The Word of God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your Word, which is living and true. And we come to it this morning longing not just to gain new information, but to bow our hearts and our minds to your Word, to conform our lives. We ask that you would come near not only to inform us, but to transform us. That you would work in the life of your church for our our health, our purity, and our peace. We thank you for uh, loving us so well that you would give us this gift. Help us to receive it as a gift and to delight in it. We ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see in Matthew 15, 18, 15 to 17, that he is outlining uh, four steps in conflict resolution. We've been walking through those steps. Sometimes those four steps have have been called and are called or described as church discipline. It is the way that we uh, get involved in each other's lives to help uh, uh, each other to stay on track and to, and to stay, keep on, keeping on following Jesus. And as we get off track, uh, that we would help each other. You know, and then often that causes conflict in the life of the church. And this is the way Jesus says you should address it. But it's usually as we, even though we sometimes talk about all four steps in this, this whole text as church discipline, usually when people think of church discipline, they're thinking of verse 17, right? They're thinking of the last two steps. When you tell it to the church, when the church gets involved, 
Um, and, and those steps come into play. When you involve the church leadership at this stage, and we, if we were to do, if we do what Jesus says to do here, uh, there will be some who don't like it. You know, there, there, are, there are things that even within the church we may struggle with, and certainly there are things that Jesus has taught us and uh, calls us to do and commands and asks of us that seem strange to the world outside. And there are a lot of things that is, if we speak the truth as we know it according to his word, that we will be ridiculed, persecuted, not understood, um, <clears throat> and that kind of thing. And so if we do what Jesus says to do here, there's some people aren't going to like it. And some people will think even if you get to the end of verse 17 that that sounds harsh. That's a difficult, that's a hard word. And sometimes it's hard for us. Uh, much less for those who might be looking on. And so it's, it, it's unpopular for, for the last, I mean, even though these, these verses have been followed for hundreds of years in the life of the church, really over the last hundred years, they've fallen out of vogue. They've gotten harder. A lot of churches have gotten away from it. And actually, there's sort of a movement. A lot of churches are coming back to it. Um, but if it's, if it's unpopular, then why would we do it? Why would we do the last couple things mentioned in verse 17? But I ask another question, because you can ask that question about a lot of things. And I would say, well, then why do we believe in the doctrine, that, why do we believe in hell and teach it? Uh, it's unpopular. It's certainly unpopular with the culture. You know, even it says like 90% of the people believe in heaven and only like 30% of them believe in hell. Like it's a very unpopular doctrine, even if you believe in the supernatural and even if you believe. So, so why would we teach it? And, and here's the thing, we teach the reality of hell, and we teach and practice church discipline for one and the same reason, is that they come from the lips of Jesus, right? Both of them do, right? Jesus is the one, we, he taught more about hell than any other person. He's the one who has uh, given us this pattern to follow, and we see it uh, followed out in the rest of the New Testament. And so we believe and we teach and we practice what we find clearly taught in Scripture because that's what it means to follow Christ, right? To know His Word and to love His Word and to obey His Word, right? To walk in His footsteps, to hear what He teaches us, and to form our lives as, as we can around it. So we find this clearly taught in Scripture, and so we teach it and we practice it. But more than that, we, we teach it and we practice it because we believe that for those who follow Jesus, that, that this is a gift, that this is a blessing, that when he gives it to the church, he gives it to us for our health and for life, for the purity of the church and our ability to continue to follow him. It's the promise to pursue us if we stray. Right? And it's the promise, if all of us read these words of Jesus and say, I'm going to follow Jesus at this point, then there is a sense in which we're all committing ourselves to go after one another if we go off the rails. And so if you, you know, to pursue, to go on a rescue mission for each other, that we would get involved, that we wouldn't stand by and watch it happen. We would come alongside and look to help. If somebody gets stuck, that we would look to help and we would love them enough to tell them the truth, love them enough to get involved, love them enough to, uh, to risk coming us alongside. Jesus says in Hebrews 12, in the first part of Hebrews 12, addresses God's discipline of his church. And, and it certainly God's discipline is found in this 
action in life, in, in the life of his church, but it, God's discipline is much bigger and broader in the way that he works in our lives to discipline us as his children. And he says that the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. And he gives this pattern of discipline for the church, which is another way that he disciplines, right? It's the hands and feet of Jesus, that, that he disciplines us through each other as we speak the truth into one another's lives. And the Lord disciplines the ones he loves, he chastises every son, every daughter that he receives, right? The Old Testament says if you, uh, if you spare the rod, you, some translations say spoiled the child, but it actually is stronger than that. It's something more, something like you hate your child. It's, you despise your child. You spare the rod, you hate your child. If you, the, you discipline your children because you love them and you want what's best for them. It's life and health. You're trying to shape their hearts and their minds and their lives in, in, the, in the way that they should go. Hebrews 12 goes on to say in verse 11, for the moment discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. Right? There's that clause at the end. It's not automatic. It's for those who have been trained by it, those who are responsive to it, those, and we talked about last week, you know, if it says, if you, if you will not listen, Right? For those who will not be trained by it, for those who won't respond, he says, but for those who will, who will listen, who will hear, who will receive it, he says that his life's restoring and life-giving. The process is pretty straightforward. Right? We've, we've taken a number of weeks to take it step by step, but really you can, in just a few moments, it's pretty straightforward. Verse 15, you know, go one-on-one. If there's an issue, get involved, go one-on-one. You know, if, if it isn't resolved just between the two of you, then he says, bring one or two more and go back. Try again. Don't give up. Right? And he says, and if that doesn't work, he says, and you tell it to the church. You get the church involved. And if they don't listen, even to the church, he says, we put them out of the church. Now, I want to note that even though there are these four steps, and there's a nice progression there of, you know, always, you know, keeping the circle as small as you can for as long as you can, you know, go one-on-one, then two or three on, you know, before you tell it. Keep it as small as you can as long as you can. But the truth is that we don't always go through all four steps, right? We don't always start in step one, and we don't always progress through all of them, that there are various reasons why you might start at a different step or get involved with some of these things Sooner, There are different factors that may cause us to start sooner. But we have to deal with the problem at the level that it presents itself. So whatever level that it presents itself, because it may be an issue that comes up in small group and becomes apparent to a small group of people. So it's not an issue between you and one person. And so you might start at the step two. There's a group of people who may need to speak into and intervene. Right? And, and there, so there are different ways that things may come out. If it's, if it's something you're... Keep it as small as you can, but you might start at step two. If you read 1 Corinthians 5, and for homework, I might encourage you to go and read 1 Corinthians 5, because it is, it is this process that, that we're talking about today, particularly in verse 17, that Paul is addressing to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5. He writes to them, and he encourages them, commands them, actually rebukes them for their failure to exercise church discipline. But Paul, when he writes to the church in 1 Corinthians 5, he begins at stage 4, at the end of verse 17. Right? He, Paul begins in 1 Corinthians 5, where Jesus ends in Matthew 18, 17. Right? So Paul jumps right in to the end and says, put this person out. And the question is, Paul, why would you do that? Why would you just skip 
that the other three steps and go right to the end? And the answer is because it was, it was a public issue. It wasn't something that was private. Jay Adams, writing about it, says that it was a matter of notoriety in the church since the people were living together in a relationship that everybody knew about. It was not a matter between two individuals. It was a matter between the man and the church. And so Paul begins discipline at stage four. Because when it's that public, you know, the steps one to three, particularly one and two, assume that it's a small private matter that only one or two people know about. But if it's a public matter, and there's a certain amount of notoriety, then the church leadership knows about it already. You don't have to tell them, maybe. Then they need to get involved right away. If the peace and the health of the church are endangered, and it would be another reason that that we would get involved, if there is a danger posed by something that's going on in the life of the church, then the shepherds would need to move swiftly to protect the flock. Right? If, it's an, if it endangers the flock, the church can cause division and brokenness and there can be factions and problems and, and hurt, then shepherds have to move quickly to protect their flock. Paul writing to Titus, Titus is a pastor of a church, churches in Crete, and Paul writes to him, uh, again, addressing this issue, he tells him, as, as for a person who stirs up division, right, there is nothing more dangerous in the life of a church than divisive people. Right? Churches split and splinter. Factions form. Feuds happen. Right? People are driven out all kinds of when, when there is division. As for a person who stirs up division, Paul says, and that's kind of a public thing. If you're stirring up division, it's not one or two, you know, it, it, it's an issue in the life of the church. Paul says, after warning him once or twice, Matthew 17, the end of the verse, right? Have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. He's self-condemned. His very activity in the life of the church that's been warned and addressed more than once is all you need to say if he's not responsive. Paul says, take action quickly. For the sake of the flock, protect the church, protect my bride, protect my people. Don't let it go on. Like, address it quickly, clearly, firmly. Call them, you know, to come back. Call them to stop. But he says, verse 17, if he does not listen, right? Because Jesus' assumption as he teaches this is that his followers will listen. That when they see that what they're doing is damaging his, his people, his church, his flock, his family, his bride. That when we see that what we're doing is, is, is against his word, he says he assumes his followers will listen. His followers will repent. They will want to turn. And he says if he repents, forgive him. At any stage, at any point, if it's addressed and a person repents, Right? There's much rejoicing. You know, the, I don't know if you know that if you notice that uh, it's the parable of the lost sheep, sheep that, uh, that precedes this passage. And I don't believe that's by accident. That if, if you've lost a sheep or you've lost that coin and he says, and you go after it and you look for it. And if you find it, he says, there's much rejoicing. Right? There's a party. And that's the goal. Right? Is to find and to reclaim so that there can be in the life of the church, great joy. But he says in verse 17, if you've done 15, you've done verse 16, you've gone with two or three, verse 17 starts, if he refuses to listen even to them, he says you need to tell it to the church. It's time to involve uh, the formal church leadership, the elders, 
to our congregationalist brothers and sisters. Uh, this means to involve the whole congregation. Right? So a lot of Baptists and some of the independent uh, denominations that are congregational, when they hear tell it to the church, they hear, they hear you involve the entire congregation in, in this process. And there are, I have great sympathy with parts of the way they do it. So they're going to play this out a little bit differently than as Presbyterians we do because our form of government is a little bit different. And because we have elders, when we hear tell it to the church, we hear you know, tell it to the leadership of the church, the representative uh, ordained leadership of the church, and let them get involved to try to help uh, before it becomes congregational. You know, for them, they're going to play it out a little bit differently. There are times I think that could be really helpful. But that's really hard to start talking about people's personal issues in a public setting. But all of us carry responsibility with it, whatever in that sense, whether congregational or we as Presbyterians, when he addresses the church and tell it to the church, certainly Jesus is telling this whole process to the church and carries a responsibility for all of us to obey it and to respect it as we see it played out in the life of the church. We, we should expect it and we should uh, respect it and we should <clears throat> want to, as far as we are involved and as it comes to the last step, to respect it and to be a part of it. Calls for the whole church to be a part of the plan. And when sin continues, there comes a time for the full weight and authority of Christ acting through his church to be brought to bear. And that's what it says. You know, you can dismiss an individual, maybe a couple people in your small group, somebody who is, you know, not ready to give up. They're stuck. They're struggling. But when the, the full authority of Christ in his church as vested in the elders and the leadership, get involved. Uh, it brings the weight of that, hopefully, to bear in such a way that it would call them to respond, to listen. Now, you need to understand whether it's on step one, one-on-one, when Jesus says, if, if, if it happens, it's one-on-one, go, or whether it's two or three with the one, or whether it's the church, that it's the authority of Christ. You don't go on your own authority. You don't go. Some people will say, well, how can I confront somebody in their sin when I know I'm not perfect? Right? Or how, how can I, you know, get involved? Because I know, like, where does this, it comes in the, it's, it's Jesus' authority. This is his word. This is his plan. It's kind of like, I would compare it to the Great Commission, where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go in my authority. Not because you're perfect or not because you're the one. You're not, you're not proclaiming yourself. I tell you to go because you're proclaiming him. And so when he says, if someone sins and he says, go one-on-one, you don't go in your own name in that respect. You go with the authority of Christ because you love them and is part of his church and because this is his plan and command of how he is going to work in the life of his church to reclaim those who are struggling. And so when we go, we go in obedience and in a sense with the authority of the one who sends us. Our hope is when elders get involved, that they would respond. And you need to understand when elders get involved, they start informally as well. They try to come alongside. When something comes to the session, right here we have uh, 12, 13 elders uh, making up our session, our uh, ruling uh, body. And when information comes, usually there's something going on, we will uh, commission a couple of guys to go. And go and pursue them, right? And at first, it is just simply coming alongside and looking to help them. Coming alongside 
and addressing it's in their lives and how can we help you and do you see what's in the word and we love you and don't you see where this is taking you and do you see how this is the damage this is causing do you see what where Jesus is calling you this way and you're going this way and it's time working with somebody gently seeking to restore them our hope again is that when elders are called in to do that that it would bring home the path of danger and that they would hear and that they would respond and, and if they listen, you've won your brother. Game over. That is always the goal, is simply to win them to repentance and faith and to following Jesus. That is the goal at every step and at every way. And at every step when that happens, we embark as a session on a search and rescue mission. The goal is never to punish. It's never to embarrass. It's never to bring hurt or harm it is not done in self-righteous. Uh, it, it is not coming to judge. It is coming to help. Our goal and our desire. If anybody wants help, right? And you need to understand uh, that this is true. No matter how bad the sin is, no matter how many times a person has committed the sin, right? No matter how stuck the person may be, anyone who wants help will get help. Right? That's what we're looking for. We're not looking for perfection. We're not looking that you've conquered it. We're not looking, you know, and it's not, you know, get it together. and then come. We, we come alongside to help. And if somebody says, I see it and I want help, anybody who wants help, the full resources of the church will be brought to bear to help. The elders will come alongside. If, if there's a cost involved, we're willing to help pay. We've paid for counseling and for different kinds of retreats and things to help people get whatever help they need. So the whole idea is, is, is uh, it doesn't matter how bad it is, if anyone wants help, if they listen, then that is, that is a, there is nothing more that would bring joy to our souls as a session as, as shepherds than to have someone say, yes, help me. If the informal appeal doesn't work, if they refuse to meet with us or they don't want help, uh, the process does become increasingly formal. The session will write a letter of admonition or come alongside, and, and our book of church order gives us a pattern so that we can do it consistently as we act in different uh, situations. And, you know, we'll, if, if all our informal attempts at pastoral care and encouragement and admonition don't work, if they won't listen even to the church, we get increasingly formal. We'll send a, a letter outlining the danger, you know, the authority of us to call you to keep your vows you know, when we take those vows that we submit to the government and discipline of the church, you know that we take it for that moment. That's why that vow exists. You know, it doesn't come into play in other moments. But to submit to the government and the discipline, that is to the elders and to this process, that's what the vow says. I will, even if, even if you're, you're stuck in your sin and you're not sure you can let it go and you don't want it, at least the vow you said that you would listen to the elders, you would submit to this process. And so even that vow would keep you engaged and willing to get help. But if it doesn't work, if they persist in a lifestyle of sin, after persistent efforts to help them, to encourage them, if they will not listen even to the church, even to the full authority of whatever authority Christ has given and however you see it, whatever it is invested in the leadership of the church, if they won't listen even to the church, 
and they won't work with the elders toward resolution or to get help, then Jesus says you need to take the last step. Right? Tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. A Gentile and a tax collector, which is, in other words, treat, put them in the category of those who are outside the church. Put them in the category of unbeliever. Right? Jesus' assumption is that his followers will follow him. Right? Jesus' assumption is that his followers will, will turn away from sin. We said last week there's that question of loyalty between sin and the Savior, between sin and our Lord. You know, and the assumption is that there will be a turn. And if somebody is consistently choosing their sin over their Savior, at some point their profession of faith comes into doubt. He says you can no longer treat them as brothers and sisters in Christ. They can no longer be a part of the visible church, that they become like an outsider because they have chosen, in a sense, their allegiance to something outside of Christ. 1 Corinthians 5.2, Paul puts it this way in your homework passage of 1 Corinthians 5. Paul puts it this way, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Right? It's the same thing Jesus is saying in different language. That's what Jesus means. Let him who has done this and who won't listen, he says, be removed from among you. When we can no longer affirm their profession of faith, they have to be removed from membership. Right? To join the church, they say the number one and, and almost uh, you know, the, the bottom line requirement for membership in the church is a credible profession of faith. Every time I fence the table as we're doing communion, I say, you know, you know the, the, the bar for participating in communion with us is not that you're a member here, but that you have someone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ and is seeking to live a life that is pleasing to him. And if that's you, you're welcome to join us, right? And if that's you, you can be a member of the church that you've put your faith in Christ and are seeking to live a life that is pleasing to him. When you cease to, to live that life that is pleasing to him and refuse to leave it, then that's the bottom line, credible profession of faith for entrance into church membership. If we can no longer affirm their profession, then we have to remove them. The word you often hear along with that is the word excommunication. And that word often brings emotional, I don't know when you hear that word, it brings an emotional response. We think of um, <clears throat> Uh, medieval kind of uh, things. The word literally excommunion is to remove from the communion. And so for us, it means to remove from access to the table. If you're, if, you're, if you're not seeking to live a life that's pleasing to him, you know, and you're not repenting of your sin, then you shouldn't participate in communion, right? And you're, you, you have, you're removed from the communion table, but that is a sign of, of, of being part of the communion of the church, the communion of saints, so to excommunicate means just simply what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5.2, let him who has done this be removed, excommunioned, right? Taken out of the communion of the church, out of membership of the church. Now let me say this, I want to be clear that we're not saying that the person is not a Christian, right? Even at that step, uh, we're not saying that the person is not a Christian. God ultimately is the one who knows the heart. God ultimately is the judge. We cannot make that judgment. We don't know. But what we're saying is, you know, and we are saying something. We're saying your life is not lining up with what it means to be a Christian. By their fruit, you will know them. 
And by your fruit, we're not sure we know you. Right? The credibility is in question. This is Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 again. Paul says this, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Right? I can't judge Christians for, uh, uh, non-Christians for acting like non-Christians. Right? That's not our place. You know, what do we have to do with that? But is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge their fruit and the credibility of their profession of faith? Right? God judges those who are outside. But you need to purge the evil person from among you. You need to take steps to protect the church. Let me run quickly and to say that before we rise to this level and the church would take this step, unrepentant means, uh, means that the sin needs to be three things. It needs to be unrepentant, it needs to be outward, and it needs to be significant. Unrepentant means what we've been saying all along, that the person refuses to listen. They refuse to let go of their sin. They either won't acknowledge it or they won't leave it. You know, they're in that relationship and they're going to stay in that relationship or they're in a sin and they don't want help. They don't want to fight it. They, they want to live in it. And if that's where they want to live, it needs to be unrepentant. It needs to be outward, which means it can be seen. It can be proven. There are evidence. There are witnesses. We're not guessing at the state of people's hearts. Right? And that is a dangerous game to play. It is not one that we would... Get involved in outward means that we don't discipline things like pride and covetousness. Things that, don't, that are not outward and visible. Things that are clear in somebody's life and is being lived out in some way. And that it's significant. And that means that it is clearly contrary to God's word. Right? That it's clear in God's word that it's wrong. And it's clear that they're not obeying that and not living in accord with that. Right? A refusal to obey God's word. And a refusal to obey God's word would make us question whether the person is really a Christian. If, if the spirit is not at war with the flesh, right? if the spirit is not at least saying, help me, and I don't want to do this, right? that's a sign of life. That's a sign of, of, of that warfare. That is what we're looking for is, you know, let us help you. But where there is not that kind of thing, when there's a clear refusal to obey God's word. Now let me make just one quick note on why we would make a public announcement. And we did that in the last year. We made a public announcement. And if there's anything in church discipline that we get more feedback on, it's the idea that we would publicly say something. And so let me just make a couple of, I guess, points that might help us, because this is where people would struggle. And the first answer is we usually don't. And where things tend to be that private, it rose through a private ranks, you know, from one-on-one to a couple-on-one, the leadership got involved, and still there's a small circle of eight or ten people, the session and those few, and they deal with it. And if it's dealt with that level, oftentimes you'll never know. Uh, And it isn't publicly done. But if sin is public and scandalous, I mean, if it's obvious to everybody, if half the church knows, and sometimes the people who ask about that, there's half the church who doesn't know. And they're like, why would you say that? Well, it's because the other half of the church knows, right? It, it, it's out there. It's public, and it's scandalous that this is going on. And so there it becomes, for us, we believe that it becomes worse not to say something than to say something because so many people are involved in it. And because the session or the leadership never says anything, it's like, do they even know? Are they handling it? How are they handling it? What's going on? And people are like, what happened? And what's going on? And this is where gossip is fed. And sometimes it quells gossip and and puts things down. If something is of public nature for the session to say, 
we see the elephant in the room, right? We're dealing with the elephant in the room, or this is how we've dealt with the elephant in the room. Um, so you know, and we would encourage you not to gossip. It's not your business. It's been dealt with and handled. And so we might, for the health of the church, as an act of love, and sometimes we do it to protect the church. Sometimes for you not to know is dangerous, right? That wolves, you know, in the midst, that could be dangerous in the life of the church. And there's a time to speak out and to say something so that that person doesn't cause constant damage like a pinball, you know, through the congregation with people who don't know, right? And sometimes, you know, Tim, Paul does this when he writes to uh, Timothy, a pastor in Ephesus, in 5, 19 to 21, he says, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. Right? If they persist in sin, this is if they don't listen, if they don't listen. If they persist in sin, he says, rebuke them in the presence of all. So that the rest may stand in fear and so that they would know. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules. You know, there's only a couple of places Paul does that. Where he, at 2 Corinthians, he does it, and here he does it, 1 Corinthians 5, where he does it, see it at the end where he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, the King on the right hand as, as Lord, and of the elect angels who haven't fallen, who are in his presence in heaven, in, in, the, in the presence of the court of heaven, I charge you to keep these rules. Right? And as a pastor, as an elder, I hear that, I'm like, oh, Lord. Right? When he says... What he says to do is for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. And it gives that kind of charge to say, make sure that you do what I say. Right? Then we, there are times when we as a session cannot be obedient before God to whom we must give an account unless we do what he says. And there are times to do that. Let me just close with a couple of quick run over of the goals of church discipline, and I think ultimately that is, is, at the, is at the heart of it. As a gift and a blessing to the church, it's God's way of saying, right, what, what does this path tell us? What does this tell us? It says, Jesus is saying, I love my church. I love my bride. I love the, the family that I've spilled my blood for, my blood-bought people. And, and I want to protect them as a shepherd. I bear the rod and the staff for a reason. Right to protect my sheep, and so he, in his own way, sovereignly uh, disciplines us. But then, in the in the life and in the shape of the church and in its leadership, it also calls us. He calls us, and in in a sense, gives us authority and a calling to participate in that, because you're involved in verse 15 and probably in verse 16, and even as it comes to 17, all of us, as it becomes a public issue. There's a responsibility on us if we love the church like he does. And the elders have to weigh all of the purposes. Let me give you three. And, and sometimes you'll, as you think about the session, if we're involved in discipline, we're trying to weigh several different values, several different goals. And some of them have to do with the individual, but some of them have to do with the whole church. And we have to weigh that just as we would anything of the danger, when is it dealing with the individual, is it become a danger to the flock? And we have to be concerned about that. And so the three goals would be, number one is to reclaim someone who's caught in sin, right? To help people get back on track. Here it's a very simple thing for the spiritual health 
of God's people, whether individually or corporately. John MacArthur says the goal of church discipline is not to throw people out. It's not to embarrass them. It's not to be self-righteous. It's not to play God. The purpose of church discipline is to bring people back into a pure relationship with God and others. It's to help us spiritually stay healthy. Our greatest joy is when someone is restored, right? The first and foremost goal is simply to see somebody restored. Even after the last step is taken, our hope and desire is that they would come back. That somewhere down the road, six months down the road, a year down the road, that the Lord is working in their life and they come to conviction over their sin and that they would come back to be a part of the church. You know that guy in 1 Corinthians 5 where Paul says, let the one who did this be removed? In 2 Corinthians 2, that man has repented. And he writes to the church and he says this. You know, they were still not treating him well. And Paul writes to them, the one who was very hard on him in 1 Corinthians 5, in 2 Corinthians 2 says, you should rather turn. If he's turned, you need to turn and forgive him and comfort him that he may not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. That is the goal. If he turns at any point before or after that last step, the goal is if he turns, we turn. And we welcome him back with open arms and to reaffirm our love and our desire uh, to fellowship with them. So we do it to reclaim the person who is caught, but we also do it to protect the body of Christ. And that is a high value for us as shepherds who have to protect the peace and the purity of the church. That if there is wolf among us, if there is, if there is a cancer among us, that we would not let it spread and devour the body. And the church, the leadership needs to act as it can to protect you. And so at some point, we will take action with someone. As Paul said, to let the one who has done this be removed. He writes in 1 Corinthians 5, Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, it's dangerous. But thirdly, it preserves the honor of Christ and the church's witness. And this is huge. We Exercising church discipline is one of the ways we love the lost. It's one of the ways we love those outside. Because if you keep people in here and we're committing all sorts of what, you know, sexual sin and, and infidelities or, you know, whatever, it goes on in life unchecked, unaddressed, you know, undone, and people know you and know you're a member of this church. You know, oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a deacon at Hickson Presbyterian Church. And they know what you're about. What does that say about the church, the church in general? What does it say about Jesus and what it means to follow him and to be a leader in his church? How can it is unloving to the, to the world to give them an inconsistent message? Love for the world demands that the church Church speak clearly about what Christianity looks like. Sometimes it looks like repenting and getting help. It's not perfection. People say, I blew my witness because I sinned. You didn't blow your witness until you didn't repent, you know, and get help and pursue to do what's right and to apologize, right? That, that is... Church discipline is to those inside the church what evangelism is to those outside. It's the call to repent and put your faith in Christ and follow him. The Lord disciplines those he loves. That's why Hendrickson says, a lack of discipline is a curse on any church. Because the line between the church and the world 
is erased. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have loved your church enough not to leave us to figure these things out for ourselves. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your wisdom. We know that you are the wisdom of God. And in these words you have given to us, the wisdom of how we are to proceed and to love one another and be involved in one another's lives and to protect and preserve your church and our testimony and your honor in the world. Father, help us to see it and receive it as a gift, to embrace it and to be involved in it, to respect it, because you are the Lord, and this is the way that you are leading us. Lead us wholeheartedly down this path for the honor of your name and for the health and the peace and the purity of your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.